Hi, I'm Reverend Carol Saunders, host of The Spiritual Forum. I'm here with a lot of interesting people who are consciously walking the spiritual path, experiencing and expressing the divine in unique ways and through unique lenses. Everyone here has wisdom to share and an interesting story to tell, all to inspire you on your spiritual path. Welcome to The Forum. Welcome to The Spiritual Forum, everyone. So glad you're here. Ah, it's a great day here in Wisconsin. I'm in rural Wisconsin, and wherever you are, I hope you're having a fabulous day. This podcast is here to bring you hope and inspiration on your spiritual life and your spiritual path. And I have guests from all sorts of walks of life with all sorts of experiences of the divine and all sorts of modalities to share or just experiences to share. And I know it's all spirit inspired. And so I know there's somebody out there that's going to really benefit from today's guest. I want to remind you a few things. If you want to help out with this ministry or this podcast, feel free to donate on my website, thespiritualform.org slash, well, thespiritualform.org. And then uh, if you want to learn about the retreat, thespiritualform.org slash retreat. Okay, let me introduce my guest. My guest today is Stephanie Sarazin, and she is an experiential grief expert, research, and author. As an accidental grief researcher and experiential expert in ambiguous grief, we're going to learn about that today, her work focuses on the process of navigating ambiguous grief, which is an emotional state that occurs with, with the loss of a loved one, but not the loss to physical death when someone is still living, yet whose relationship with us has changed. I'm sure that's something that we will all identify with. Mm. After Steph's own experience with ambiguous grief, she sought out her own healing, as well as other people who shared her experience, which further led to research, discoveries, and hope, um, or discoveries about hope, and co-authoring the ambiguous grief process model. Steph now works to bring awareness to ambiguous grief as a nuanced, natural, and navigable response to loss. She's the founder of Rise Up Rooted Community, and her book, Soul Broken, is publishing this fall. I think it just published via Balance, an imprint of Grand Central Publishing. So welcome, Stephanie. Hi, Carol. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I'm happy to be here too. I'm I'm really glad it worked out. And I'm really interested in learning about this because I had someone on not long ago, well, a couple of months ago, and we talked about grief. And I've we've gone through a lot of loss in my own family and a lot of that kind of grief. But there are other kinds of grief. And I think people don't know about it. I think they feel it, they they sense it, they don't understand it. And I think just naming it as you have, ambiguous grief is really helpful. So what I'd like you to do is just kind of start off and briefly tell your story and how you got to uh, being this, having this specialty in ambiguous grief and tell us about what ambiguous grief is. Uh, Certainly. Well, thank you. You know, to to start, I will say uh, studying ambiguous grief is nothing I ever aspired to do. Um, (laughs) You didn't wake up. You didn't say that as a six-year-old, you want to do that. (laughs) You know what sounds like a good, good time? Uh, No, not at all. I, you know, I I went to uh, college and studied human ecology, sociology, community programs, and uh, continued uh, with a master's degree in public policy. And uh, my interests were in government organizations, in 
uh, you know, working in community organizations. And I did that for many years and enjoyed what I was doing, felt that it was um, making a difference for others. And uh, a big part of my career was working with the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Great feeling to go to work every day and grant wishes to kids with life-threatening medical conditions where the mission is to bring hope, strength, and joy to a child with a, a, a life-threatening medical condition. And you know, coming home every day, uh, doing that work was very fulfilling, as, as you can imagine. Uh, and, you know, fast forward a few years, I have um, three terrific kids. I'm in a wonderful marriage. And um, at about close to 20 years um, in this in this relationship, I discovered that uh, I was one-sided and thinking it was pretty wonderful and oh, um, okay. discovered that my husband at the time, my former husband, um, uh, was feeling differently. So you know, a this betrayal trauma is what I've I've come to learn. Uh, it is called it is called uh, was something that uh, was just really broke me open. It was uh, it was a big surprise, and divorce soon uh, soon followed. And that was seven years ago. Now, looking back, Carol, it's it is that experience one that at the time I would say I wished on nobody. The, the pain of separating from a person, from a life, from an identity, from a relationship that I so loved was uh, painful on every level. It was painful on a cellular level, on a soul level. And, uh, oh, I was just desperate to, to find my way through the pain. And, yeah. you know, what I found is that nobody was talking about it. Certainly, I wasn't the only one to have a painful divorce experience. And I was really looking, asking friends or family members, who do you know? You know, like you might ask for a referral of any service. Who who do you recommend? Is there somebody, do you know somebody I could talk with? I, I was really looking for, you know, kind of a big sister type to say, yes, you're going to be okay. Here's, here are some things to do. And um, I couldn't, I that was so lofty an aspiration when I look back on it, because I couldn't even find anybody to say, yes, uh, me too. What I came to find out eventually is that when, when there are experiences that we have that are attached with shame or embarrassment, mm -hmm. internalized as shame and embarrassment, we don't talk about it. Um, and I think we don't talk about it because we don't want to be talked about. Mm -hmm. So instead of sharing what was going on, um, you know, I couldn't find others that were willing or wanted to do the same uh, until I published um, an article online saying, why aren't we talking about this? Uh, and I started hearing from people from all walks of life, not just those suffering quietly uh, in their divorce or their broken relationships, but individuals who are are grieving the loss of their children to uh, addiction not mm -hmm. knowing where they are um wanting that child back uh, some of my own peers who are grieving the loss of their parents to cognitive decline diagnosis of alzheimer's traumatic brain injury i i met a woman who said who reached out and she said you know i haven't told anybody that my husband has been incarcerated for the last oh, two yes. years. 
Yeah. I don't want anybody to know. And, you know, and what I began to learn in is that I'm not alone. I'm certainly not alone, but that we don't, as you said, we don't recognize that our experience is grief. We don't know there's a name for it. And, and what I began to understand is that everybody just thinks they're really sad. Everybody just thinks that they're going through depression or they're, they're on an Island and figuring it out on their own. Uh, but that's not the case. And I, my hope is that the more we are able to talk about it without shame or without embarrassment, the more others will feel more inclined to share their stories too, and feel less alone um, in, in whatever life gives them. So do you think one of the problems that we have is that our society is very focused on being upbeat and things are good. And so it's hard to share difficult emotions, period, not to mention the parts that bring in shame and embarrassment. I think so. I think that's certainly part of it. And and not just that, but societally, you know, we we have we have the the uh, notion that things are private. You know, there are certain families that are raised with, you know, we don't air our dirty laundry. This is our family business. This stays inside the family. And, uh, you know, that's uh, certainly not anything I'm judging. It, it does, however, have, have uh, issues that kind of ripple through that, right? And, and can leave families feeling, individuals within families feeling obligated and, you know, to the honor of their family, to staying within the family or to finding help and, and, you know, relief for themselves. And, when you speak about this, you know, happy, uplifted society that we all live in, I think social media has done us um, a disservice in that vein because, you know, we don't we don't see our endings on social media. We see our beginnings, and I I began to learn this right when I was not until and I was guilty, not until I was going through it and I took a, a break from social media. And then, you know, a year or so later, I came back on and I thought nothing, nothing has happened to anybody. And, and I, I wasn't looking <laughs> for bad things to have happened, but I was, I was more curious to find my people because I was finding them in emails, right? I was finding them as people reached out to me or as friends, you know, or people were referred others to me, but I wasn't finding it amongst my own network. Right. And again, not that I wanted to see that they were having difficulties because some of them were, but we don't recognize it. We don't talk yeah, about I, our I, endings. I think that we, um, I think social media certainly encourages us to, to show our, our happiness and the whole person is negated. It's like, I am this whole person and I have feelings. I have things happening to me all the time. Some are safe to share. Some don't feel safe to share. But on social media, it's like, especially with younger people, oh my gosh, I feel so bad for younger people, high school, college, where you're just really comparing your life to other people and they're out on yachts and <laughs> wherever, vacations in Mexico or whatever, and here right. you're feeling really sad. Um, so I, I can definitely see that's part of it. I can also see this family dynamic as part of it or the idea that, because this isn't my family, I can feel as you said that, I'm like, I have a pattern in my life where I handle things privately. 
I just do. I, I do, I've got to look at that. Did I learn that from my parents? Probably. But I also think I learned it within my family because I was kind of a little, I was kind of like the sensitive one. I was the one that, that, you know, that cried too much or felt too much. And I was really so sad about animals and, and oh, Carol's, you know, you know, she's, she's so sensitive. And, and so I, I learned, I, I learned to defend myself by, having a private world. Like, like I've got something to handle. I'm not going to go, this is not about me, but I, 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 there was a time, there was a day in my life in first grade that I was in such a humiliating and embarrassing experience where like the whole class was laughing at me. And I'm bringing this up because I did not go home and say, mom, dad, I can't tell, I believe, like, you can't believe what happened to me today. I didn't. I'm like, I'm just going to handle this. I'm six years old. I'm just going to handle this because I, I don't know if it was because Carol's too sensitive or they're very busy, but I learned at a very early age just to handle my stuff. So I'm kind of yes. sharing that with you. <laughs> Probably Thank <one> you. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. And, yeah. and and it is about you. It is about you. It is about your <laughs> listeners who can who are nodding along with me as you yeah. say this. And it and it isn't because your parents were neglectful, horrible people. No, right? they were great well, parents. <laughs> they're great parents. And let's give them, let's give everybody just the, the yeah. gift of the benefit, right? And, but, but it's how we adapt and how we learn to adapt in our family units so that we can feel protected and safe. I, I resonate with so much of what you're, you're saying. And for so many years, uh, until this, you know, big um, grief opportunity broke me open, I, was very proud of my ability to handle things on uh -huh. my own yeah. and to take care of business and make decisions. And, um, it, you know, I, I called it independent and well able. I am well able to do all of these things, right? Um, what I've learned is that as we look at our family dynamics and our family of origin, that, of course, that's where we learn so much of it. And what do we have as contrast, but the shows we might be seeing on television or the other families we see in our neighborhoods, right? Um, we, don't, we don't know the difference. And so we are taught and then we adapt. And so, so many families just keep things private because that's what they were taught to. And maybe they mm -hmm. were humiliated and then they decided we're going to keep things quiet because I shared and it, you know, it didn't go it so well. <laughs> right. So who knows? Yeah. For whatever reason, the way I am wired, I needed to talk to somebody who mm -hmm. understood this. I was mm -hmm. so desperate. And that's when I discovered that there's there are just droves of individuals who are experiencing this kind of grief. I didn't have a name for it. I didn't know quite what it was. And I had this really um, prickly um, emotion that would bubble up. And I would, it would be very present and I could feel it, but I didn't know what it was. And it's an emotion, you know, in, in the way that you would know anger or depression or the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross stages right. of grief that we're, mm -hmm. we're all familiar with. And, and I recognize and acknowledge that she created those stages for individuals who were dying and later, you know, added that it, it's, it's not necessarily for, uh, their family members, it can be, it was never meant to be a, you know, all encompassing. This is what you go through and it's linear. It's not, but I had no education on grief, uh, in public policy school. So 
that was all new to me. And I was trying to feel my way through it. I had grandparents who had passed on. And so I had understood grief and grieving to that level, but not to the level that I was experiencing. And what kept popping up in, you know, anger, uh, you know, a day I'd have a day of anger and I'd be so mad. And then I'd feel depression and just cha-cha back and forth, bargaining, denial, you know, all of these stages that a terrific therapist um, told me I could probably expect. But there was this one other emotion I just kept finding in myself. And as I found a group of other women with my experience and we became, we went through um, group retreats together and stayed in touch uh, on a day, on a near daily basis for a while, I saw it in them too. And then one day while we were all together uh, a year on our year anniversary of meeting these, uh, this, these, this friend group of mine, I had the, um, what I've learned from you actually is called Claire Cognizance. Uh-huh. Uh, I just knew what it was. It was as though it had been downloaded into me, like a, like we like we might upload our you know data to our operating system. We you know we have a new operating system, and all of a sudden it's you know Stephanie two It's hope. There was this experience of hope. I was hoping in my grief, and what I found, Carol, is that when we lose our loved ones to a physical death, we aren't hoping that they're going to show up on our doorstep tomorrow. Right. right? We, ha- we have an understanding of the finality of death. I'm not saying we don't grieve well. I don't believe we grieve well in our society as well as others do. And, and we certainly have a long runway, I think, where we could improve. But we're not hoping that our loved one is going to come back to us after they have died a physical death. And yet when our loved ones are gone to us through a non-physical death, hope is something that is quite common because we are hoping for, uh, uh, you know, a recovery from addiction. We're hoping for an apology and a, you know, return from the, the spouse or an estranged family member. We're hoping for a cure for Alzheimer's or for the traumatic brain injury or cognitive decline. We're hoping for an early sentence release for our loved one. Um, you know, incarceration and um, indoctrination is another that I found individuals were were grieving. Um, a loved one indoctrinated to a gang or a cult or yes, I was some- just thinking. Mm-hmm. I was thinking yes. that then the other thing that came into my mind as you were talking, and I don't know if this fits, but if you have a child who is married and their spouse somehow draws them away from the family, familial that- estrangement, absolutely, okay. and yeah. oh, the heartbreaking stories I've heard from individuals, uh, you know, and, and the one that comes to mind is a, was a, a grandmother just absolutely adored her grandchildren. Um, and then five years later, uh, you know, with two grandchildren, she was told we, we can no longer see you. And when, when we're ready to talk to you about it, we will, but we're not ready. And she's left in grief, right? Yeah. Because they are there, they live across town. They, you know, and so she's adapting her life to not go into the grocery store because she sees her daughter-in-law's vehicle out front, right? Wow. Or, yeah. And, you know, and so familial estrangement is definitely something as I've talked with, with others that, you know, are, there are two sides to every story, of course. And yet, as I speak to grievers, what I find is a consistent, um, 
through line is their confusion, their confusion of, of what they've done. And, and something that I hear many of them say, and I actually interviewed a man um, in, I write about him in chapter one of the book. He, he said, I, I know I wasn't the perfect father. Of course I made mistakes, but did I deserve this? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then, and then how do you, what do you do with that hope? Right. So, you know, um, being a, a grief researcher was something that happened out of my own necessity to try to understand and learn. And, you know, there's a terrific therapist. Um, her name is Dr. Pauline Boss. She's, um, I believe she's out of Minnesota. And she coined the term ambiguous loss back in the 90s as she was seeing patients whose loved ones um, had a their physical presence was not known. So perhaps it was a loved one who had been kidnapped or swept away in a natural disaster or a like MIA. soldier, soldier yeah. who's MIA mm -hmm. and the loss is ambiguous. So mm -hmm. as I was mm -hmm. trying to understand my own grief, I found her work and it's, it's tremendous work. And I thought, oh, this is really close. And she, you know, she later uh, extended the, the definition to include a loss with a psychological presence, such as Alzheimer's. And so while her work was a great starting point for me, it didn't quite capture what I was looking for, which was somebody who had been through it, who could guide me through it in an actionable way, you know, and, and so that's where ultimately the ambiguous grief process model came from. I was, I worked with a terrific therapist, um, who's local to me to, uh, develop a, a, an assessment tool and a survey and dug into the data with that public policy degree I wasn't using and, um, used that, uh, in knowledge to take a look at the data I had and found how people are hoping that their loved one returns and how long they hope is indicative of how long they'll hold their pain. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So you partnered with your therapist on this model. Is that correct? Yes. So I okay. have seen, she's not my primary therapist. I was referred to her for EMDR therapy, eye movement, desensitization, rapid mm, reprocessing. Yes. It is a tremendously helpful and horrible therapy. <laughs> it is used for trauma um, victims. It, uh, it, it's incredible. It, it's a simple eye, eye movement back and forth as you're recounting your traumatic memories. And our brains reprocess. We shelve it in a different area of our brain so that we're able to think of it, to speak of it without it debilitating us. So I had gotten to a point where I was just unable to do that. And my primary therapist recommended that I see this therapist for EMDR. Okay. Interesting. Was tremendous, tremendously helpful for me. And, um, after our time together was done, I had shared with her my hypothesis about ambiguous grief about this. My loss isn't ambiguous, but my grief is, and how do I move through it? And I've noticed this prickly thing called hope that pops up and it's holding me back. I see it in my group and I see it in myself. And, um, and she said, okay, would you, I think you're onto something. I, I see patients daily. Um, and that's, that sounds very familiar. So let's, let's partner. And so we did. And, um, the data found 
exactly that. There's two different kinds of hope that an ambiguous griever may likely encounter. And hope is a great thing. Don't get me wrong. Right. Hope is a great thing. But I can see that if you're holding on to it in a way that you could hold on to it that could not could be holding you back and that you have to release it at some point. I can see that. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, for me, I, I also, you know, as a spiritual person, I also think it's good for us to always have hope for life, you know, for life yes. to unfold, for love, for for the world to manifest in a beautiful way. Um, but I can see that when there's a loss, that if you're holding on to the hope of some sort of miraculous return or awakening, that it's um, it's a it's like an arrested development. It's like it's stopping you. That's so well said. That's so very well said. Yes. And, you know, hope has been written about for ages because it is wonderful. It's a virtue in Catholicism. It is, oh, Emily Dickinson, you know, hope is the thing with feathers that yeah. perches in the soul and sings the tune all day long and never stops at all. And I read that through my new lens. You know, of course I read it before. Sure. And now I've read it after. And I read that and I think, it is a bluebird or it is the, you know, like Cinderella's bluebird is hope <laughs> or it is Iago, the parrot from Lion King. Just, oh my goodness, stop squawking at me. <laughs> right. And so I think that, you know, I, 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 Pope Francis did a beautiful uh, Ted talk on hope that I recommend all, all often. It's, it's lovely. And so I am in no way, you know, bearing the flag of hope is bad. I get However, it. I do believe that hope misdirected can be as dangerous as it is good because when we're focused on a cure for our loved one or we're focused on whatever our focus is that is placing hope outside of us for someone else is is meaning that we're not hoping for ourselves right? Our energy is being directed toward another person. And we get very busy finding solutions for other people's problems. Right. And it seems, it seems also a, a, a trick of the ego, like, I will be happy when this person returns, or I will be happy when this person awakes. But the truth yes. is, I need to find my happiness, whether or not that person does anything or not. That's right. It is not, it is out of our control. And, you know, the serenity prayer is something that, um, you know, speaks to that. What, to know the difference of yeah. what, what is ours to control and what isn't. And, you know, when we turn, if we're not turning our hope internally, I don't believe we're giving our grief the space to transform us. I see that. That's that's I, I, I well, that's the quote. Of, so far, that's the quote of the podcast. Oh, <laughs> super! And it's not you know it's not really a popular opinion um, amongst yeah. some people because and that's that's certainly fine and and perhaps they'll never need to see hope in that way, you know. But when we're able to to say to kind of lay down our sword and say it's an act of it's an act of love. It's an act of self love. I believe to say okay, I'm I'm going to be aware of my external hope and I'm going to choose internal hope. And what that looks like is 
you know, so internal hope looks like I am envisioning a life with, for myself without that relationship as it once was. It doesn't mean that that relationship won't take on a new form. It, it doesn't mean the person is out of your life forever. There's a myriad of ways that relationship can continue or not, but having the acceptance, finding acceptance can then help you determine how you hope. And that hope is a, is a slippery double agent, right? Because yeah, I see that. It can keep us cycling in between, you know, okay, as you said, it's the ego. I'm going to go ahead and help my loved one. It's my job. And uh, let me research all of the, you know, the best doctors and let me find the, you know, best resources and let me take over and make this better. But it isn't, that isn't our job and it isn't for us to do, right? So we have to, if we turn that inward and start, you know, asking, you know, my favorite prayer is show me, show me. And so every time I sit with that, that prayer and I sit in that meditation, it's always about me, which is also not popular today to say <laughs> it's about me. It's but always it about it's always about me. It, right. It but we, always but about we, me. Yeah. Even but we though. wear a badge of selflessness, you know, especially as as po- popular with women to be yeah. so serving of others. And yes, we have would it, we all should be in service of others, but we must be in service of ourselves first, I think. And so to take care of ourselves first and kind of clean up our spiritual home and be okay with who we are in relation to our person who isn't as they once were is, is really the only way forward. And we can't do that if we continue to focus outside of ourselves. Right. And I, I think the focus outside of ourselves is is also a trap of the ego. Like it's out, it's all out there, whether we want to help things out there, people out there, or whether we think all the problems are out there. It's right. like everything, everything is out there, but it is, we do have to kind of let that, you know, boomerang come back <laughs> right. and point, point right. at us. I think ultimately, I mean, I think ultimately the spiritual path is, is reckoning with that I, I I have I had to find a place where I am okay no matter what, no matter whether I'm in relationship with people, whether they betray me, whether they love me the way I want, whether the world is going to pot, whether the world is working in the way, whether you know the politics out there is how I want it to be. No matter what is happening, the whole thing would be falling down, and I'm okay. I think that's like the spiritual, ultimately wow. the spiritual path. You know that it's. It's me and God, or me and Source, or whatever you want to yes. say. But, but uh, you know, and I, it, it is a trap. I have, I'm in it all. The, I, I have this idea that not that I can control the lives of loved ones, but that I have some sort of power. Like I could, like maybe if they just knew this, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> maybe they don't know this, and if they just knew this, that 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 could help them see that. And it's like. You know, it's, it's it's also just really a lack of faith in the universe unfolding the way it is designed to unfold. Everyone's on their path doing their own thing. Why do I think I need to intervene over there or over there? I'm really doing it because I want to feel better, I think. 
ultimately. Right. And I wonder if it goes back to, and again, I'm nodding along with you. I'm laughing <laughs> with you, not yeah. at you, because yeah. I also know the right way to do things and offer <laughs> that advice to others. Um, but I do it now with kind of a, a wink and a smile because my way isn't the right way. There's a hundred ways through ambiguous grief. There's a million ways through. And, and I actually say that in my book that I, this is but one way. This is the way I traversed it. And perhaps something will spark interest for you too. But there are so many ways. And yet I wonder though about, as you shared of your family of origin, of your six-year-old self handling the lunchroom you know, fiasco on your own. Well, so why wouldn't you offer others the right way to do things or an, an insight that you might have or a, a learning, you know, for me, I, I believe that it comes from my, my inner child, that right, personality, right. you know, is something that I can look at and say, Oh, I see how I developed this. I see why I developed that part of yeah, my personality. It's, I think it's a, I think it's a part of, um, so it's like something like I, I, I would have had these feelings of humiliation or embarrassment or whatever, um, and even if it doesn't apply to another person, you know, I can help you not feel that, <laughs> you know, like, like I can save you from that. Oh. I think, I think part of that is that. And, um, although I don't think for me, I'm saving people from humiliation, but I do think the energy is the same. The energy is the same. Uh, I, sure. I, I would love to avoid to have you feeling bad about anything, you know, find, doing something that could cause you uh. physical harm or something like that. But I also know that my ego is wrapped up in, when they're happy, I'm happy. I do know that. I do know. And I'm not talking about everyone. I'm not like a perpetual helper in the world. I'm talking about the people who are close to me, you know, my daughters. Sure. And they're the ones who I think most about. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> and, you know, yes. I think there's this, yeah, it, it is interesting. I've got to look at that. I'm going to dig into this. <laughs> well, and here's, so I ask you this because this is something I wrestled with. I'm a mother as well. I have three incredible children um, and not so little any longer, but, um, you know, it, as a mom wanting to uh, save them from their pain, wanting to uh, shield them from pain, I think is natural, of course, mm -hmm. right? We all want to do that. But at what point does it become um, harmful? And at what, yeah. and who am I to, to alleviate a situation that could have been an incredible life lesson for them, right? right. So it's this fine line of rescuing because we don't want our children to feel this way and being able to get, for me, get out of my ego, recognizing it as such, because they're, of course, they're better when mom's happy. Everybody's happy, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Yes, same. Right, and right. and I, I, I would imagine that's probably fairly universal, you know, yeah. and, and yet to see mom in grief or to see mom struggling, I think it's just as valuable, maybe sure. even more valuable, right? Because then, you know, you see mom get through it. You model that that way through. Well, yeah. And I think um, uh, I'm going to get to your model in a minute, but we're still, we're still sure. psychoanalyzing me. I think <laughs> when I think about it, my parents never, my parents had a very good marriage. I do know that. I think they were soulmates, but they never really modeled mm -hmm. conflict between them. I never saw it. So I think that was also modeled for me you just handle it. You know, they handled it, whatever it was, I just handle it, you know? And, yes. and so it, like you say, it's, it's good for kids to see, I think it's good for kids to see their, their parents breaking down or, or, you know, breaking open as you talk, as you said, and, you know, feeling the grief and feeling the feelings and that models for them that it's okay. 
Yeah, I think so too. And I think that we all just have to do what, what we feel is the next right thing to do. Yeah. Especially if we don't know what to do, you know, and I think some of the worst advice I was given early on in my grief was if you're going to cry, you cry in the shower. And it wasn't a suggestion either. It was a, it was kind of a directive. And that did not resonate with any part of me that just, I knew that it was wrong, you know? And I think that if we can tune into our selves, if we can tune into our, tune into our intuition and, and hear ourselves respond or feel ourselves respond, that can guide us to that next right thing. And for me, it wasn't to go, I would be in the shower all day. I couldn't stay in the shower. <laughs> run out of water. From morning till night, <laughs> right? I was crying constantly for a year. And, and so my children saw me cry. And when they would say, are you okay? I would say, I will be, I will be. Um. And, and, you know, um, I think people, I, I know people have very strong opinions on grief and how I grieved or how they might see others grieve. If you're raised to, you know, keep it within the family and cry in the shower. And that's a point of pride for a lot of people. Yeah, And right. I, I don't begrudge that in any way. That was not my experience. And my, my understanding is that um, hiding our emotions can be detrimental. Oh yeah. Uh, it's a our whole kids. shadow thing. And we, <laughs> we, we right. keep all that down and, and we don't hide them. It comes out in different ways. We just project it onto yes. someone else. Yeah. So, so we're, um, so, for, so I'm, I'm really kind of interested in what, what you see your mission in life is, but I'm, and, and what do you do? Like, are, are you helping people through this ambiguous grief or, um, I know you have some ambiguous grief model, but mm -hmm. let's just say I I'm going through this. What do I do? Right. So for me, I wrote the book that I wish I would have had all those years ago. And, you know, it is, um, it's a guidebook for somebody to work through individually if they would like. Uh, it's also, there's a book club discussion guide. If, okay. You know, perhaps the, your, as I was at one point in a group uh, with others all over the country, and this would be something we would work through together you know, and come back and share every week where we are in the process. Um, and just interestingly, I, I'd like to add that um, the designers, uh, the cover design came back beautifully for the book, looking like um, uh, watermarks all over um, these paint marks. What is the word? The watercolors, right? Okay. Okay. And, and because ambiguous grief is so hard to define, it's different for everybody, kind of like sure. just the watercolor. But I asked them if they could put a path through it, right? Because I believe we're all on a spiritual path, whether we're aware of that or not. Right. And if we are willing to allow grief to be a portal to our greatest and highest selves, I think that it can move us forward on our path of humanity. And, um, you know, so that's something I talk about with individuals. Uh, I ended up doing grief certification classes through two, two different organizations as people were coming back to tell me about their grief and their experiences. I didn't feel that I was equipped to best help them. And so I got myself certified uh, with the Grief Recovery Institute, which works through a very specific model of grief. 
of, of an individual's grief with one person. And then the David Kessler uh, grief certification as well. And David Kessler worked, uh, you can find him on grief.com. He worked with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross toward the end of her life and is just a wealth of information. So I am doing one-on-one grief education. Um, I have grief workshops that I'll be starting in January and um, group facilitation, uh, grief group facilitation as well. And, you know, my hope is that as we talk about grief, um, that is different than grief to death, more people will feel more comfortable sharing their losses and recognizing that, you know, grief is nothing to hide from or be embarrassed or ashamed about. Grief is grief is the invoice you get from love, right? It, it is, sure is. Yeah, we, it is. We grieve it because is. we love deeply. And, mm-hmm. and I, how lucky, how lucky mm-hmm. that we should know grief. Um, it means only that we, we know great love. Mm-hmm. I think that's beautiful. And I think of you, you mentioned about other cultures early on As other cultures. I mean, you see them when they lose a person, I'm talking about physical grief, physical loss, mm-hmm. you know, the wailing and, you know, all this, all of this emotion. And then, you know, you go to a funeral in, in our country and there are people crying kind of quietly or whatever. And there's this whole process you go through, but there's not this guttural wailing that right. goes on. And um, which which may have been what you did for a year, um, not in not in the shower, but mm-hmm. it, it is part of being human. It is part of being human. And um, I, I when I when you tell your story in the beginning, I was what came to me is that you know like everything your marriage your marriage breaking up you're having the betrayal trauma, like all of this was just. You know, breaking your, you said you broke broke yourself open. It, it broke you open. All of this was just preparing you for this part of your life. Like, like there's a divine hand in this whole thing. Not, I don't really believe in everything's preordained and everything's decided. But, but that that somehow this this all of this came to you, and that you you're able now to go through your process and then use it for good. You know, you're using it for good. I call it a ministry. You may not want to call it a ministry. Whatever it is, it's a it's a life calling that you're mm-hmm. answering now to help people with something that's so prevalent in our society that is kind of left unnamed. So it, it all seems like a God thing to me. <laughs> Thank you. I know that it is. You know, yeah. for me, and that's not something I would have said, you know, without this experience. Uh, uh, days before the discovery. I was talking to a dear friend on our morning, our daily morning call. And I said to her, I don't know where this is coming from, but I'm, I'm called to write a book. Do you have any idea what it would be about? And she said, no. (laughs) (laughs) Do you mean like a novel? And I said, I don't think it's a novel, but I, I'm, I, I need to get quiet. I need to get quiet. And she said, ask, show me right? Make that your prayer. And I said, okay, I will. Days later, um, everything began. Everything broke open. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately, um, you know, as I said, at the beginning of our talk, this was no place I ever aspired to be. And yet, uh, I feel so divinely led to this very moment. And I trust the unfolding every single day. I have seen my life nudged 
and nudged and nudged in so many um, ways that can be nothing other than divine, I see it and say, thank you. Even if I don't like it, I now say, oh, mm, okay, thank you. Thank right. you. Right. I see it. I I see what you're what I'm being given, and it's my choice. It's all of us. It's a choice for all of us. When you know we're when the divine is speaking to us in whatever way you know the divine or name the divine, I believe that the divine is speaking to us all of the time. And unless we can get quiet and listen and be a vessel to digest it, um, we're not we're not living in present awareness of what we're hearing, whether it's through an individual, a stranger, um, an experience, an animal, you know, nature where it's, it's always there. And, um, I'm so grateful that grief ultimately gave me this beautiful gift of awareness. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? I just think that's so cool because I mean, God does work in in interesting, interesting ways. And we're always, we, when something bad happens, the first thing is like, why me? Why me? What? You know, I just spoke with a person a couple of days ago on my podcast and um, she had uh, heart and kidney transplant and she was faced with, why me? You know, I'm a good person. Why me? <sighs> that's a first, that's a first resistance. And then something absolutely wonderful and beautiful came through that for her. And this is the coolest <sighs> thing about, about spirit, about the spiritual life about just releasing our attachment for how things should show up, how things should look. And, you know, we think we get on a roller coaster and we're going to ride that roller coaster throughout life and it's going to take us back. And then we kind of, you know, get off the roller coaster and that's death. But I mean, we're always getting on and off different rides. Always. Different rides. The, the, the ride will stop and it's like, oh, it's going in reverse now. And I'm like, oh, that's not what <laughs> right, I expected. Buckle up. Right, exactly. Buckle up. Yeah. And I think and, if we're willing to, to, uh, bend, just bend to it without resisting it, you know, lean into it a little bit, um, and trust, really trust the unfolding. There's so much to be learned, but we, everything is so noisy today. It's yeah. And we have so much coming at us from all the different angles of, you know, what, like we said, happiness and what it should be. And, and, you know, I think we miss a big part of the human experience if we don't, uh, take take all of it, right? Yeah. Take the rest of it. That isn't so y- yeah. beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful a... in a different way. <laughs> yeah, it's not like mm-hmm. we're at a restaurant. I'm going to say I only want that, and I only want that. It's like, oh, <laughs> no, you got the whole menu. <laughs> right, absolutely. And and how lucky are we? Truly, you know, my greatest teacher in life. I always say this is my brother, who's two years younger than I am, and he's never spoken a word. Um, he was born severely multiply disabled. He's never taken a step. He's never said a word. Uh, my parents continue to care for him today. And when you, when you love an individual who is so, I don't, I don't say he's disabled, say he's differently abled, you know, Uh growing up, um, he has taught me so much. There's no dis, uh, we're all dis, if we're going to say, you know, disabled, then we're all disabled, right. Uh, In our own ways, (laughs) That's true. but we are all able in our own ways. And he is well able without speaking to be an incredible model for compassion, right? Just in his existence. And, and even though that has been uh, woven into the fabric of my life and my sister's life, you know, and my parents and anybody who meets him or anybody similar to my brother, um, you know, 
it's it was this experience of grief that brought me back to to that which had already been planted in me, which is just this this lack of other, right? We are all connected. We are the the betrayal trauma that I experienced is um is is now as it was the day before that devastation filled with love. You know, you can't just flip on love um, and you can't flip it off either. Well, I mean, turn it off like a light switch, not flip I it understand. off. Um, <laughs> right. But um, you can, but you that's really not holding for, for your greatest <laughs> and highest good. That wouldn't be your greatest good. Right. But, um, you know, and, and so having compassion for others who are um, not in our lives as they once were, uh, is also giving compassion for ourselves. And, um, you know, my brother taught me that and I'm continuing to learn every day through my grief that that's something we can always access if we're, we're willing to shut down our ego and, and try. Yeah. Um, another thing that came to me is this recent way families are cutting each other off with, you know, things like how they, how they view COVID and are you vaccinated or unvaccinated? And can you come home for Thanksgiving? Can you not? And, you know, our home was a thanks was our Thanksgiving home was anybody who wants to come can come if, if your family's not, not letting you come oh. home, come home. But that that's another thing that we're doing to each other. Yes. Um, yeah. We're dividing amongst yeah. our, our own tribes, our own units, right? Yeah. For yeah. what? For ego, really. It comes down to, as I'm sure you've, you've talked about at some point, fear or love. And when everything is deduced down, are we acting out of fear or are we acting out of love? And every time I catch myself, every time I ask myself that question is not when I'm acting out of love. Like when I ask myself that question, I am already rolling my eyes at myself because, okay, wait a minute. No, I'm behaving this way because I'm acting out of as Gary Zukoff says, a scared part of my personality, yes, uh, which is fear. I'm acting out of fear. I don't want to act out of fear. I want to take away that ego who everybody can have their own opinions on everything. So, right. Me uh, too. It's, it's so important that, that this is a little separate than your, um, ambiguous grief, but it is so important that we do what we can to, to keep, maintain our connections. Now I'm not saying if it's like a divorce or Alzheimer's or something that you're going to maintain the same connections, but I'm talking about these other things where we are having these artificial boundaries where we're cutting each other off. Very important to not, to, to, to stay as connected as we can to people. Um, because that energy is going to be what shifts the world and stops all this division. Amen. Yes. Absolutely. And that's a, that is a through line through your podcast, through the conversations you're having, you know, is that connectedness. And, and I believe that uh, I wear a shirt that says we're all connected. I just, I believe it so deeply. I know it deeply. It's more than b- believing it. I know it. It's we are clear all cognizance. <laughs> it is clear cognizance. A word I learned recently. Um, but you know, the title of my book is soul broken and it came to me in uh, and work I was doing with a shaman. And then the next week, a friend said the word. And I thought, what, how do what, right? Both of these words within a week of each other. And I'd never heard the word soul broken in my life. And as I wrote about it, I defined it in 
in, as a disconnection from self. It's more than to be heartbroken, which is, you know, we all experience heartbreak in our <laughs> yeah. life. Yeah. Our dog ran away or boyfriend broke up with us or, you know, disappointments, heartbreak. We've all had heartbreak and it's, it, it's hard yet to be soul broken is to be filled with anguish that is onset by the loss of our love, our relationship. And it's often void of validation, but at its core to be soul broken is to be disconnected from ourselves and from our connection to the divine and one another. Yes. And I think that is why grief is a terrific portal to help us reconnect to ourselves, to the divine and to one another. And so I hope more people start talking about grief, not in a way that speaks of recovery in a way to, you know, recover from grief and cover up, but to Yeah, something they want to be finished with. It's, I love this. Grief is a portal. I, grief is a portal. I, I, I love that idea. And I, I believe it's true. With several grieving people now grieving for actual physical loss, but, but it, grief is a portal and it's a portal for, so is it a portal for our soul to heal? It's a portal for, I believe it is a portal for knowing our greatest and highest self. It is, it is a portal to the best us as we are created to be. It is the, it is, uh, it is to truly know your soul that ever present, everlasting, and we can hide from it because it's painful. Grief is so painful. I think language can also help by just tweaking our language a little bit from, you know, passing away to passing on. They're not gone. They've just, they've gone on. And, um, you know, from recovery. And when you look at the etymology of the word recovery, I, well, I, I don't want to recover my grief. I thought I did until I was writing the book and taught and started really learning what, where recovery, where the word recovery came from and, and embarrassment was, was built into the etymology. And I thought, well, I'm not embarrassed of my grief. And then I thought again, clear cognizance, I'm regenerating. This is new. This is the Genesis. I, I aspire to regenerate as a greater and higher version of myself. And shouldn't we all, right? So instead of turning away from our grief, I, I, I hope others might see it from a new lens and, and be proud of their grief, embrace their grief, and allow it space to transform them, to take it as that portal. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, I love the term regeneration. <laughs> um, so I know we, we need to wrap up. I know you've got a back end. Is there anything else that you want to share with people? I can give you the last word. I, I will say to my listeners, I haven't read your book yet. It's just come out. So I am looking forward to, to taking a look at it when you send me a copy. Um, but it is a beautiful, I love the cover. It's beautiful. And I like the title as well. So thank I'll give you. you the last word and then we can close. Well, just thank you for having me, truly. Um, the book is uh, in my hands, but it will not be on shelves until October 11th. Okay, so well, that's pretty soon, though. <laughs> it's pretty soon. So however that might, it's available for pre-order now. But yes, okay. um, it uh, will be available for everybody on shelves October 11th. And thank you for the opportunity just to be in conversation with you and for the work you're doing to bring my favorite topic um, 
spirituality and the human experience. I could talk to you for hours. Thank you for so allowing <laughs> me to come in conversation with you about it. And, and, um, you know, my hope is that this has reached somebody who, um, feels less alone in their ambiguous grief. And, yes. um, and for that, I'm so grateful for the opportunity that we were able to connect and, and for you giving me that time. Yeah, me too. And I do think this is something that is probably universal, you know, <laughs> it's probably universal. And, and I, I, I know somebody is going to be very blessed by, um, by the book and by the work you've done. And um, for you saying yes to the calling, you know, saying yes to the calling when spirit tapped on you, you're like, okay, oh, this is where I'm thank going. Thank you for honoring that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, Stephanie. I appreciate you, Carol. Take care. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. And thank you to all the listeners. I now close the spiritual forum. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, you can let me know by leaving a positive rating and review on your favorite podcast app or make a tax-deductible donation at thespiritualforum.org. The Spiritual Forum is a podcast, prayer, and retreat ministry affiliated with Unity Worldwide Ministries. Thank you again for being a part of the Spiritual Forum community. And remember, you are an amazing, divine, and powerful being.